Well, thank you, Keith, for that welcome. And just to say it's been a great few days being up here and working with your worship team. What a great bunch of people. And uh, just great to enjoy the presence of God this morning. Now, I am experimenting this morning. This is radical that a man of my age should be preaching with an iPad. (laughs) This is a first. So, what I would like to say is, if you're a real Christian, take out your Bible. (laughs) If you're Old Covenant, take out your tablet. (laughs) Okay, it's gone wrong already. But it's all in my head, so... (laughs) Okay, turn with me to the book of Hebrews and chapter 10. I have a very good friend who is one of the New Frontiers great preachers. His name is John Hosier. And uh, I've had the privilege of being a colleague of John Hosier's for over 25 years in the church in Brighton. And John is one of the uh, best Bible expositors I've ever come across, really. And he would say that the book of Hebrews is one of the most neglected books in the New Testament. And uh, I guess when you read it, it is a bit hard to understand because you've got lots of references to the Old Testament. But it's a very, very important book in understanding about worship. And if we can just get to grips with it, it will help us to um, understand what God's heart is for worship and how we we should worship. And it also helps us to understand the worship journey that there is in the Bible from Genesis right the way through the Old Testament. And there are lots of references in the book of Hebrews. Remember, the book of Hebrews was particularly written to the Jewish people and rooting the Christian faith firmly in the Old Testament. And it's very, very important that we do that because there can be a tendency today to slightly marginalise the Old Testament. Um, And uh, I think it's very important that we, we don't actually do that. Now, the theme of worship is something that runs right the way through from the book of Genesis, right the way through to the book of Revelation. In fact, worship... The worship of God is right at the heart of our faith. And the first commandment is that we should love God uh, and him only do we serve. In fact, the very first Hebrew word for worship in the Bible is Shabbat, which means to bow down. So that primarily doesn't have anything to do with what we do when we come to church or singing songs. It has to do with a heart attitude towards God. And when Moses was uh, just about to go into, the, or the children of Israel were just about to go into the promised land, and uh, Moses um, is kind of sending the people in, he's about to die, he knows that. He gives the, what is reckoned to be the great commandment that we should love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul and strength. And you may remember when Jesus was teaching, one of the Pharisees came to him and said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said that you love the Lord your, the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul and and strength. In other words, the whole of your being is involved. Now, sometimes as modern evangelical Christians, we divide ourselves up, sometimes into body, soul, and spirit, or into just body and spirit, or body, spirit, and soul. That's the kind of language that we use. But in the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament view of man of our personhood is that we are totally integrated and the Bible doesn't separate those things. We are totally integrated. So our worship is totally from all of us, from our mind, 
our heart, our speech, our emotions, our body. So there are many injunctions in the Bible to worship God with your body. So leaping about, jumping, raising hands, bowing down, lying prostrate on the floor, all of those things are ways in which we express what is going on deeply inside of us. Now, I've been a Christian, I worked it out just now, for 66 years. And in that 66 years, I've seen an incredible change in the church. The church that I grew up in was, it was a good church. It was actually in the Salvation Army, which is a very musical denomination. And uh, I learned to worship, to sing, to play the cornet, play the trumpet, play the piano, and uh, it, it, it was great. And I saw very early on in my Christian life the connection between music and creativity and worship. But in those days, there was, I, I, I guess, uh, a kind of formalism to worship. And, um, you know, if you came from a traditional church, you would have the kind of hymn board with the numbers up or you would have somebody who would call out the numbers of the hymns that would be a bit like hymn bingo. <laughs> and um, uh, there's been an incredible change over my lifetime. And that change began to come about in the 70s when God's Spirit began to move on his church and what we now call the charismatic movement began. And there were three key aspects to the charismatic movement. One, it came out of a desire for revival, praying for revival. And then what seemed to happen as, as many people were beginning to call on God for revival, the Holy Spirit began to be poured out on all sorts of churches, traditional churches, denominational churches, and churches began to be renewed. And it would be in the mid-70s that Rosie and, Rosie and I, um, it's a long, complicated story, I won't tell it all, but we found ourselves in an Anglican church, which was very unusual for us because Rosie has a Pentecostal background and I have a Salvation Army background. But this Anglican church was coming alive in the Holy Spirit. And the vicar, the Anglican vicar, invited me to go on the staff. I'd been baptised in the Spirit and um, I was beginning at that time, mid-70s, to write a new kind of song for us to sing in church, which we now call a worship song. And I, began, I was a professional musician. I'd done a music degree. I was director of music of a high, in a high school. And uh, I, I was called out of that to in, into ministry, but because I'm a musician and uh, um, I, I could not stand some of the songs that we were singing, simple little banal tunes with silly words and three chords on a guitar, all in the key of E or A. And I thought, there's got to be more to worship than this. <laughs> and um, I began to, to write some songs and the vicar of the church invited me to go full time. And it was an Anglican church and there was a degree of formality to it, but the Holy Spirit was moving. And so the Anglican vicar was dressed in his white robes and um, the Holy Spirit was beginning to move and uh, I used to preach and do the, the midweek meeting and taught the church about worship. But I used to have to wear a robe. I used to have to wear my black academic gown. So when we were at the front, it was like the angel Gabriel and Darth Vader together. <laughs> um, but God, God moved very powerfully in this church and we began to see many people filled and flooded with the Holy Spirit. It was an amazing time. And it was at that time that people like Graham Kendrick, Chris Bowater, Dave Bilbra were beginning to write songs. And we began to relate together and meet together and wait on God together. And they all represented, these songwriters, 
represented different streams of what God was doing in this renewal. But there was something that was going beyond renewal and it was that it wasn't just that God was going to renew the old thing, but that actually what he wanted to do was restore the church and that worship and spiritual gifts and the vibrancy and life of the spirit was not just to be done in a midweek meeting in a corner, but God wanted churches alive in the spirit. And what has become known, I guess, in many ways as a worship movement, which we do have, and it's worldwide. So we have great events like David's Tent and um, great celebrations and uh, uh, Soul Survivor and New Day and all sorts of devoted, all sorts of other events. Worship is right at the heart of that. Now, it's very important to understand that this is something that God has done by his Holy Spirit. And historically, if you look back, every time God has moved powerfully, a new rise of worship has been part of that. So if you read about any revival, worship has been an integral part of that revival. So when Wesley had his revival uh, in the 1700s, his brother Charles wrote wrote even more hymns than Stuart Townend and um, Grant Kendrick put together. He was a great hymn writer. And then in the uh, 19th century, when William Booth began to preach, the Salvation Army bands and and, uh, their their songs, the Salvation Army brass bands were as radical as a kind of hip-hop worship time today. Honestly, socially, they were as radical as that. It, w- it was an incredible thing that, that happened. And these, these Salvation... Over 4,000 churches planted by the Salvation Army in just 10 years, and many of those over 1,000 strong. It was an incredible move of God. And then the Pentecostal revival, and then the charismatic um, renewal, which began in, in the 70s. And what I'm, the reason I'm saying this is that it's important that we put worship in the context of the prophetic purpose of God in bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. So when we read the Psalms, we see the psalmist writing and prophesying beyond what the people were experiencing. So they all thought, the Jewish people all thought that the kingdom of God was focused on them. But David writes great psalms like Psalm 68, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. And then he ends the psalm with encouraging the singers and the musicians to all start singing and playing and prophesying. And then he comes out with this great prophetic statement Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. And so it was something that was going to go beyond the Jewish people. It was going to break out the nations and the nations would worship. And that's why we're here today. And that's why the book of Hebrews was written because it helps to connect all of that Old Testament worship all the psalms and um, the glory of God, the manifestation of the Shekinah glory and and all of that, it helps us to understand that that was a a kind of uh, a, a prototype of the big thing that God was gonna do. And so we're going to read some verses from Hebrews chapter 10 and we're gonna pick it up at verse 19. So I'm reading from the ESV. Um, Therefore, brothers, and it includes the sisters as well, the Bible is not gender exclusive. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I can draw five main principles of worship out of that, but on each of those five points, there's going to be quite a lot of expansion. So we'll see if we get through this. So I'll, I'll do my, my best to get, get through it. Okay, so the book of Hebrews translates the Old Testament into the new. There is a saying that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. So we have the full picture now through the power of the gospel. So we're going to start this off with the beginning of the passage that I've read and I'm putting it under the heading, the worshippers' invitation. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the, through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Now, this is loving relational language. There is no other world religion that gives the invitation to draw near to God personally. And if you are not yet a Christian this morning or you are not sure, the great thing about the Christian faith and the thing that makes Christianity different from every other religion is that it's not a religion with lots of rules that you have to obey and go through certain forms and rituals. It's relationship. It's knowing God personally. It's having a personal relationship, a personal encounter with him. And if you have not had that encounter, you can find that this morning. And I hope some of the things that I say will help you to do that. So the invitation God gives to us is to draw near to him. Now, Notice that he says, the writer to the Hebrews says, that we draw near with confidence. The Greek word there is parhesia, and it's used a couple of times in the book of Hebrews. It's, it's used also in Hebrews chapter 4, where it says that we have a great high priest, and so, so Hebrews 4 and verse 14, since we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we get the same idea. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, parhesia, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the word parhesia in Greek is a, a word which means come without any restraint, with freedom. You can just come into his presence. Um, some time ago, my, my uh, son and daughter-in-law, Nathan and Lou, were in uh, Johannesburg for six months and uh, they, they had their children with them. And after the six months, when Rosie and I were at the airport, uh, Heathrow, waiting to meet them, we were standing there, we hadn't seen them for a, for a while, and uh, the grand, three grandchildren spotted me as soon as they came through, and they came running as fast as they could. And Ella... Uh, the little girl just jumped up into my arms, wrapped her arms around my neck and said, Grandpa, Grandpa, Grandpa. Do you know, it was one of the great moments of my life. It was so wonderful. That is 
Parhesia. We can come before God. We can come with confidence. Now, the interesting thing about this is that when we come, we are welcomed. Now, one of the biggest hang-ups Christians have is the hang-up of condemnation. Not feeling worthy. Feeling, well, you know, oh, I'm just an old sinner. You're either a saint or you ain't. (laughs) When you are born again, you are made righteous. You are clean. You are holy. God declares it over you. He says you are righteous. You are in Christ. And so we come without condemnation. We come without fear. We come unrestrained. Now what can happen, and I've led worship for so so many years, I look out on a congregation on a Sunday morning and you see some people who are just there ready to go, others are kind of looking a bit down in the mouth and you, you look out and you know that people have handled all sorts of things during the week. Some people have had a good week, some people have had a bad week, some people, you know, some might have lost their job, some might have just got a job. You've got the whole gamut of everything. And when I look out on a congregation like you guys this morning, I guess there are some of you like that. Some have had a good week, some it's been difficult and painful. But when it comes to worship, we're on a level playing field. God is totally accepting of us. We don't have to go through any ritual or anything. We just simply come. That's why the raising of our hands is just such a lovely expression of worship. It's just just simply just saying to God, thank you that you accept me. And don't listen to the voice of the devil. Think you're a Christian? Look at you. I saw what you did last week. I heard that word you came out with. Yes, that's all true. But it's God who justifies us. Nothing, nothing. Who can bring a charge against the Lord's elect? It is God who justifies us. So remember that. So when you come to worship, whether it's personal or whether it's a corporate time like this, you come unrestrained. And why? Because of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has cleansed your past sin. It cleanses any sin you might have now. And it cleanses any sin you might commit in the future. Now we do have to deal with sinful attitudes sometimes. But you are righteous. You are clean. That righteousness has been imputed. It's legal. You are living in it. It's inward. You are, if you cut yourself down the middle, you are righteous. If you tear your skin apart, you're righteous. Hallelujah. And you know, the great thing is when you know that, that helps you to have victory over sin. Because when gossip starts to come out of your mouth, you say, oh, I don't do that. I'm righteous. All lustful feelings come. I don't do that. I'm righteous. Appealing to your righteousness and living in the grace of God gives you freedom of access into his presence. And so we, I remember Terry Virgo used to, when he was preaching on grace, used to say, we don't gossip in this church. If there's gossip, you, say, you just say, if somebody gossips, you say, we don't, we don't do that. We are righteous. We stand before God righteously declared not guilty. And I just want to say a big hallelujah because it takes away the condemnation and we come to God with an open, honest face. You know, Cain, when he sinned, it says his countenance fell. Don't let your countenance fall. You know, man is an anthropos, an upward looker. We can look up into the face of God knowing that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So we overcome 
by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. That means that we testify to what the word says the blood does. So God looks at the blood and we are declared not guilty. So we come through the blood and we come by the new and living way. Now the new and living way is the way that Jesus has set for us through the cross. You see, in the Old Testament, the whole way that people came to God and they had a real experience of God. If you read the great stories of the tabernacle in the wilderness and David's tabernacle, there was what was called the Shekinah glory. And the Shekinah glory was manifested over the tabernacle. And uh, uh, the people could kind of see it and they, they, it, they would experience it in some way, but it wasn't inward, it was outward. And there was, it was all connected with fear. And so there had to be this elaborate uh, system of sacrifice and ritual and the priest dressing up in holy garments uh, and the priest would do it all for the people. But now Jesus, our great high priest, who once for all has suffered on the cross and shed his blood, has made it possible. So his blood means that we can enter freely uh, by the new and living way. And that means that God's wrath is satisfied, that forgiveness is granted and that access is given and that fellowship is maintained. And that's the whole way that we live our Christian lives. And there are so many people going around with all kinds of fears, condemnations, anxieties, all kinds of things like that. When you realise who you are in Christ and realise your identity and realise that you have the dignity of a son, of the daughter, of the living God and that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, that's an amazing way to live. So many people have an identity crisis today. All this uh, transgender stuff that's going on out, out there, all sorts of uh, identity issues can be settled by realising who you are in Christ. That is where your identity lies. And so you are no longer an old sinner you're a saint. Hallelujah. So we enter by the new and living way. It's relationship, not ritual. It's grace, not rules. It's life, not liturgy. Now, we come through Jesus, our high priest, and we come with a true and sincere, some translations say, we come with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Um, that, I believe, is, is a, a, a symbol of God cleansing us and purifying us. But we come with a sincere, some translations put it. Now, the word sincere, it's a very interesting word. It comes from two Latin words, sine cara, which means without wax. And what, what that means, it comes from the days of old when um, you, you couldn't take a photograph because photography hadn't been invented yet. But they would make a sculpture and um, they would use marble so you could go along and pay your money to the sculptor. He'd sculpt your image and um, he'd chip away and there you would have a marvellous likeness of yourself. But if the marble got a bit damaged, what he would do, he would mould a bit of wax so that it looked like the marble and you would never know. So you take it home, put it on your mantelpiece and proudly display it display it for everybody to see. The problem would be if you lit the fire, the wax would melt and the thing was flawed. So 
and so sincere, sine cara, without wax, it means coming with a pure heart to God, sincerely, honestly. And we're to be sincere in our relationships, one with another, nothing between us, openness and honesty and integrity. And that's a part of our worship. Now, there's another interesting aspect of worship that comes out here as well. And this is where I would take issue with the, if I dare, with the ESV translation of the Bible, because most of you would would probably read it like, like this. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, most translations say the holy place. Now, literally in Greek, it is holy places, but the idea is the holy place. Now, this comes from the tabernacle where in the Old Testament, worship was based at the tabernacle and the tabernacle had three main parts. There was the outer court, then there was the inner court, and then there was the holy of holies. Now, the holy of holies was the place where God dwelt, his manifest presence, his glory would come and flood the tabernacle. And so we get in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel were going through the wilderness, when the cloud, the pillar of fire or the cloud moved, they broke camp and followed it. So where God went, they went. So it gives us a picture of the, the leading of God. So God led them through the wilderness with his manifest presence in the pillar and the cloud. And it hovered over this part of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. Now, just in front of the Holy of Holies was another place called the Holy, the holy Place. It was the, 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 uh, a court where there would, the high priest would perform various rituals, hand washing, sacrifice, and so on. And one day a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies from the holy place. He would go into the Holy of Holies. And it was what was called the Day of Atonement. And it was the day when the high priest would go and confess the sins of the people. God would bring forgiveness. He would sprinkle blood on the altar. And the glory of God would be manifest there. But there was a court beyond that, the, the outer court, where the people would gather. So the book of Hebrews explains that by showing us that this is really how we approach God. So we enter the outer court with thanksgiving and praise. We enter in and then we can come in even further and realise that Jesus is our sacrifice. But ultimately, there is that holy of holies, that place where we enter right in and experience the presence of God. Now, there is a slight dichotomy here, theologically, which I want to try and explain. And that is that we live in the Holy of Holies. Okay, that is where we are. So we experience through the new and living way this place, the Holy of Holies. It's where we live. So we live in God's presence. So sometimes I hear people say, Lord, I just come into your presence. And you think, well, where have you been then? Because God's omnipresent. He's always there. Okay, but there is a sense in which we do enter in. Now, there are three aspects of God's presence which I think are illustrated with the tabernacle. There is what I call God's omnipresence where he is always there. He is always with you. You cannot hide from God. He knows exactly what you're doing. He knows what you're thinking. He's always there. He's always with you. But there is his realised presence where we realise that he's there and we communicate with him. We sing songs about him when we worship. So we realise that he's there. So we've taken a step further from the fact that he is there to actually engaging with him. But there is a third aspect, which is his manifest presence, where his glory is actually 
experienced. And so I try and help churches understand that when they are in a worship time, that these three phases are really, really important. That we enter in with thanksgiving and praise, God-focused, and where we realise that he's there and we communicate with him and we begin to sing songs of worship and we bring our praise to him and we speak to him, we communicate with him. But there is another stage that we can enter into and that is his manifest presence. And it brooks no argument. He's here. We know he's here. I felt we touched that a little bit this morning when we, we were singing All Hail the Lamb. His praise shall be our battle cry. I just felt, wow, God's here. Well, of course he's here because he's always here. But I found myself engaging with God in a particular way. Now, the interesting thing is, in revivals, that that glory, that manifest presence of God is there nearly all the time. And it's like you can read about the Welsh revival where people would drive into the, or, or in, the, in the horse and carriages, I guess, in those days, into the, or walk into the village of Lacha where the revival broke out. I can say that because my mum was born there just a few yards from where Evan Roberts lived. So I'm ver really into the Welsh revival. And pe people would go into the village of Lacha and they would just fall on their faces. God's presence was there. Now, you can't live like that all the time, but there are times when God does that. And you know what? When Sharon was praying for our nation this morning so beautifully, I just felt, God, please do something like that in our nation again. Please, God, do it. Because what other hope is there? It's such a mess out there. We need revival. But where does revival begin? It begins in here. It does. It begins in here. And I would encourage you, when you are worshipping, not to stop short at the holy place, but move into that sense where, yes, I'm really expecting a manifestation of the glory of God. And I've been in meetings like that. In 1994, when the Spirit of God moved very powerfully, I was in a meeting leading worship with Stuart Townend. It was just the two of us leading worship. And um, it was the morning session. And um, suddenly the glory of God came down on the meeting. And it was like a tangible sense of God's presence. And... It was like, I just turned to Stuart. Stuart was playing keys, I was playing guitar. I just turned to Stuart and I said, I don't know what to do. And he said, neither do I. I said, in that case, I'm not doing anything. He said, neither am I. <laughs> we were just there in the presence of God. It was amazing. Now, I would encourage you as a church to really be open as you sing your songs of worship, to be in faith and expectation. And I, I've gone away from my notes. Um, I just want to exhort you and encourage you. Have that expectation that the, the singing is not the warm-up before the preach. It's not that. It's something where we actually engage with God. And I've been saying to the musicians, music can help that. Music can help people in, engage and to worship. You know, there's a spiritual dimension to godly anointed music. And uh, some, um, in nine, back end of 93, before the outpouring of the Spirit that was called the Toronto Blessing, which is a name I don't like because it was happening in churches apart from Toronto, we were in a prayer meeting in our church in Brighton and um, we've got about four or 500 people there. It's a Sunday night church prayer meeting. And um, God spoke to me and said, everyone you pray for, you lay hands on, is going to go out in the power of the Spirit. Now, I don't do this sort of thing normally. This is not me. 
Okay, so I thought, wow, that's a, that's a bit kind of out there. So anyway, the worship band were playing, and the lead guitarist, um, he got his distort pedal, and he was playing this kind of riff with a distort pedal, and you know, it was like when David played his harp, and the Holy Spirit came upon him on the anointing, and the evil spirit was driven from Saul. There was a power in the anointed minstrel. And as this guy was playing, I felt the Spirit of God come on me, and I said, just keep playing. And I said to the congregation, just as the guitar's playing, just lift your hands to God. And I went round and started to pray for people, and everybody started to fall over. I, I totally took me by surprise. The only time that's ever happened, and I don't suppose it'll ever happen again, I don't know, but it, but it happened. And God did something in our church that Sunday night that went on for the next few years of the Holy Spirit moving very, very powerfully. So we come with confidence by the new and living way through Jesus, our, our high priest, with a true and sincere heart by faith. Okay, so that was all the worshippers' invitation. And that was a lot more than I intended to say, but you can have it for free. <laughs> so the next thing is the worshippers' hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Worship expands our hope in seeing prophetic vision realised. You see, when we worship, and it's good to use in our worship language truth from the Bible. So it's not just, it's good making up your own words to worship, but it's good to use prophetic truth. And what, what worship does, it brings us into that heavenly dimension. I expect you've heard the expression that theologians often use, living between the tension of the already and the not yet. Okay, it's a, it's a word that theologians often use. So when we receive the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter one, where Paul says that you have the Spirit as a guarantee, the word guarantee there, and I think I might have preached on this the last time I was here, the word guarantee means a down payment. So we have a down payment of heaven now in the present. So we live in the presence of the future. So we go back to the future. So we are in that future dimension, but we're in the present as well. So that means we have the ability to bring heavenly things to earth. That's why we can pray for the sick, why we can have prophetic words, why we can see uh, God's great purpose and prophecy actually connects heaven with earth. And so worship can be a platform for the prophetic to come. Now let me just give you a, a little tip, those of you who are prophetic and bring prophecies. Sometimes I feel in a worship time, prophecy can come too soon, and it's like the word is right, but the moment is wrong. It's what the great charismatic pioneer Arthur Wallace used to call, not only having the mind of the spirit, but having the moment of the spirit. And there comes a time when the moment is right, and often worship, creates that platform for the moment to be right. And so when it's the right moment, then what can happen is because people's hearts are opened up with worship, the prophetic word can be received and take root. And so we're living with prophetic hope. And so it's not a rule, it's not a law, it's a principle that should help us so that our worship times are shaped
by what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, sometimes a prophetic word can come in suddenly and take the worship somewhere, and that's fine. But as a general principle, I would say, at the beginning, give God his portion, let him receive what is his, and then worship is for him, spiritual gifts are for us. And I think the kids coming in mean that I've gone on too long. <laughs> it's great. No, great to, great to see the kids come in. So, a worship time. We can't be over-prescriptive about it, but what we can do is say, these are the principles. We draw near with confidence. We're the people of God. God loves us. We don't come in as a bunch of miserable old sinners. We come in as saints, lifting up our heads, lift up our heads to the coming King. That's great. We can do that. And come with expectation, with our hearts open, ready to receive from him. And so the passage goes on. Don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. So get to the meeting. And can I just make a comment? And I would make this in every church I go to, every New Frontiers church and every other church. Get to the meeting on time. I'll tell you why. Because if you come on time, it builds expectation. If you come, you know, as a worship leader, you know, I want to honour those who are in worship teams. You know, I'm, I'm a preacher um, and I find it much easier to go into a church to be the preacher than I do to be the worship leader. Because if you go to be the worship leader, you have to spend hours, first of all, learning the songs, then practising songs, then dealing with musicians' temperament and getting them sorted out. And then you have to get to the church three hours before everybody else because you've got all these wires and stuff to plug in. You know, it, it's a big job. Preacher just turns up Got my Bible, that's fine. <laughs> so honour, honour your worship team. And it's honouring to them when you are ready to worship when they are. Because they are facilitating you being drawn into the presence of God. And so don't neglect assembling together be there and be ready. And when you come to the meeting, so this is a little bit about personal worship. When you come to the meeting, don't come expecting the meeting to lift you. Come expecting for you to lift the meeting. And so when you sing out, when you raise your hands, when you are exhorted to do something, you are participating. So be prepared. My dad, who was a, a, an old warrior in God, went to be with the Lord when he was 80. Um, I grew up in a home where early on Sunday morning, everything was ready for the morning meeting. He even used to clean the shoes on Saturday night so he wouldn't have to do it on Sunday morning. It wasn't a legalistic thing. It wasn't that he was so hallowing Sunday. It wasn't that. It was no. Everything was geared towards being being to the meeting, getting to the meeting, we're going to be serving God today. I would encourage you to do that. And with this, I'm going to end. I'm still really on my first point, but never mind. <laughs> I haven't got through the five things, but I hope I've fed you this morning. Um, Romans 12.1, okay, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. Now, I was uh, saying on Friday night in our worship workshop that in the Old Testament, there are around 30 different Hebrew words for worship, um, all expressing different aspects of worship, which um, are only translated with two words in the English language, praise and worship. So that's the paucity of the English language. But in Hebrew, they had so many words. In the New Testament, we've got basically two main words for worship. There are actually four, but the two main words. One 
is used in John 4 where Jesus says the true worshippers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. And the Greek word is proskuneo, which means to come towards, to kiss. It has a sense of intimacy. It has that sense of, it's a relational word. Okay, there's a lot of uh, shades of meaning to that word, so I don't want to be over-prescriptive about it, but it's a relational word. Now, in Romans 12, where it says your reasonable service of worship, the Greek word is latreo, which means the whole round of life's activities. Everything you do is worship. So the way you drive your car, the way you treat your wife, the way you speak to your husband, the way you raise your kids, the way you do a good day's work, the way you behave towards your neighbour, the way you don't get road rage, all, all of that is worship. It's the whole round of life's activities. So when Paul says to the Romans that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. When you live that kind of worship life, when you come to church on Sunday and when you are participating in your worship time, there is a credibility to your songs because that's who you are. That's how you live. That is what your life is about. It's about giving glory to God right through every moment of every day. And it is the sacrifice of praise that, that you bring. And so that's where the will is involved. So how do we stay in victory over sin? How do we keep our lives clean? How do we keep free from gossip? How do we keep free from lust? How do we keep free from getting angry? We keep free from those things by focusing on who God is and who we are in him and worship confesses that and there is a spiritual dynamic, there is a power in grace that releases spiritual energy in us to do it right, to live right, to be right, to be holy in every situation. Now sometimes we blow it, of course we do. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We keep short accounts with God and just get on with it. We're holy and we don't wallow in condemnation. We don't allow anxiety to pull us down. We don't kind of have a cowering fear because God is our Father, Jesus is our Saviour and he loves us. Amen? Amen. I'll stop there. I'm like a train when I get going, especially on, on worship. I really love to worship God and I love teaching on it. I hope that's been helpful to you.